Hey there, and welcome to What Happens Next with Ben and Philip. I'm Ben. I'm Philip. Mate, we've been talking recently about the absurdity of many things, many, many things. Yeah. But being a business person yourself, I'd love to hear your two cents about what happens next with the bizarre business model of Hollywood. Do you know what I'm talking about when I mention that? To me, Benny, it's maybe not so much a model as it is what I understand to be their business practices, which is extraordinarily high sums of money are thrown at projects that are still very much in the embryonic stage and are not ready, are not ready. And it's only enough to have a large star attached and production staff and a director ready to go and we'll worry about the rest of it later. Let's just get going because that genre of movie and or this star are really hot right now and we can still make money out of this and let's just get it done. And and I've got to book it because I need to book a few things this year on my ticket or whatever, on my slate at the production house. And, you know, it's a very haphazard way of doing business. And I just don't know any other business in the world that would throw these kinds of sums of money at projects or ideas for making more money, which is ostensibly what they are, in such a haphazard, half-baked way. Yeah, it's interesting because I don't think any other business experiences the same lack of scrutiny or the same accountability as the film industry. For example, when Sony, based in Japan, bought into the Hollywood system with TriStar, he'd got a company that's got a very specific Japanese business model, which is incredibly accountable, incredibly profitable. There's a lot of certainty. There isn't much risk. And suddenly they bought into one of the most risk-driven business models that exist, Hollywood. Mm. And you've seen it recently with China. Before that, it was the Middle East, where people want to get involved in the sexy business of Hollywood, of the film industry. Yet they soon discover that the nature of the creative arts is that decisions aren't made the same way. There's a lot of personalities involved that have a lot of say as to whether something is made or not. And as you say, short of perhaps some startups in Silicon Valley, there's no other business in the world where suddenly someone throws $100 million at something without a script, which is the equivalent of throwing $100 million in a very short time frame at a business which doesn't have business plan. Yeah, it doesn't have a production model or an end product for you to look at. Yeah, as a reference for our listeners who aren't familiar with some of the intricacies of Hollywood and its weird machinations, there are plenty of films that come to mind, but two notable ones would be the first Iron Man, which was incredibly successful and kicked off the entire MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe. And that film was famous for basically making a character that was one-tenth as famous as Batman, a character I'd never even heard of, to being the lead star in that entire cinematic 10-year franchise. But when that film was made, there wasn't a working script, and they basically had to ad-lib and shoot stuff on the run, which is difficult for anyone to do for a low-key indie drama. But when you have to incorporate special effects and try and target a four demographic, i.e. a very wide, broad audience, it's even more remarkable. 
And another example was World War Z with Brad Pitt. Or World War Z. Sorry. Exactly. We're Australian. For the Americans, it's Z. For the Australians, it's Z. And for the Brits, it's Z. Z. They're tomato. I said tomato. <laughs> I don't I mind. Don't, tomato. 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 Go for it. And that film basically shot without a script for half the film. And in the end, they basically reshot the entire third of the film for tens of millions of dollars, which ultimately was successful, but, but, but they, was a massive gamble. But they weren't shooting on a back lot in Studio City or LA. They were in Morocco or somewhere, as I understand it. You're right. Housing thousands of people. Thousands of people and thousands of extras dressed as zombies and whatnot. And they had no idea how it was going to play out. They had no idea how long. They didn't have a schedule of, of days and how long it was going to take. They had this sort of they had enough funding to last 50 days or something and then they needed to ask for more money because it took longer or something and they had to move locations because the weather got bad or something. What mining company, for example, would, would send a team of 10,000 miners to a mining site and say, all right, you got 50 days, drill a hole and start mining or, you know, like – you at least have done your surveys, your, ge- your geological surveys. You'd know it was there. You'd have plans drawn up for what you were going to build to get the stuff out and you would at least know how long that was going to take and how long it was going to cost per day. And, you know, the business model is just – it's just nuts. And in no other area of, of, of the world would it ever happen. It's just bizarre. The industry itself employs thousands and thousands of people. I find it quite amazing. I think one of the major reasons why – it happens in the film industry and also, I guess, to some extent, other creative fields is because it's romantic. There's some sort of romance to the star-fucking environment, the idea of everyone wants to be a star or to somehow bathe in the halo of a star, and that doesn't exist in mining, for example. Like Mining's a great example as being a business model driven on just the raw economics of drilling for oil or gold. It's not romantic. It's actually anti-romantic. Like if you think of the characterization of miners, it's anti-romantic. It's about people covered in soot, you know, like it's, totally, totally. it's not something that has any sense of romance. If you would try to but, but encourage the, someone to invest in mining. But there's always been that romantic, maverick, auteur side of filmmaking where a director just runs off with a group of friends. They'll have total trust in the director and he's just got a couple of cameras and a couple of loyal staff and they go, let's just make it. You know, let's, let's just shoot a bit here and we'll see what happens kind of thing and we'll see what turns out. There's that whole side of Hollywood that still, of filmmaking that still exists whereby you can get by on the smell of an oily rag on, and, and a few great ideas and, and a great vision. And you could potentially see a reasonably large budget film greenlit because the director says, just trust me, it's all in my head, it'll be fine, we're going to do it this way and that's the only way you can do it because of this great idea that I've got. But when you have the Hollywood machine, as you say, with the international backers, these large listed companies with shareholders – you know whose shareholders are looking for returns on their on their investment, and in order to make those returns, they are throwing hundreds of millions of dollars on a whim at things, hoping that one in six, one in ten, one in twelve will stick and make their money back plus ten percent or whatever they're hoping for. You know, 
It is quite amazing. What we should probably do before we break into what happens next, we should actually decipher what happens now to understand where we are and where we go to. So let's break it down. This is a non-exhaustive list, but I think it's fair to say that one of the reasons why the film industry can get away with this is, as you've described, the creative process is given more line, more freedom to be able to find their process and thus more money to find it without the same strictness required of other industries. Number two, there's a ticking clock. That ticking clock could be some studios want to make something very, very quickly because, for example, their rights on a property is going to expire soon. They have to exercise their option to try and get a film into production. And so they'd rather get a crap film into production to maintain the rights for future sequels than forego those rights forever. good example would be Spider-Man over the last 10 years. They've rebooted three times. One of the reasons why hasn't always been for the creative reason of improving the portrayal of the character. It's because the rights are about to lapse. So they have to green light a film to get it into action. And one example of that was after Spider-Man 3 by Sam Raimi with Tobey Maguire. After those guys, the director, actor, asked for lots of money for a fourth film. Basically, they decided that they had to get a film happening quickly to maintain the rights. They balked at the huge fees asked for by Sam Raimi, the director, and Tobey Maguire, the actor. So they thought, you know what? Let's make a cheaper film than the previous film, pay everyone less, Garfield. thus maintain the rights. And so they do a reboot, The Amazing Spider-Man by Mark Webb, the director, and Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, the lead actor. And the same thing happened again with the third Spider-Man reboot with Tom Holland as Spider-Man, where they kind of made it with the creative involvement of Kevin Feige and Marvel, so tied into the whole Marvel universe, but they still maintain the rights. Same with that character Venom, same with that animated series, The Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Another reason why they rush into these decisions as a third possible reason slash excuse would be there's a race. Someone else is releasing a very similar film. Think Ants versus Bugs Life, Deep Impact versus Armageddon, Volcano versus Dante's Peak. Mm -hmm. Most recently, there have been two documentaries about the failed fire festival, fire music festival. So people want to basically be the first one in. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another one recently was Olympus Has Fallen and White. White House down. Yep. And they want to be the first one in. And so they rush something in to be the first because being the first is more important than being the best. Yeah. They're like three obvious reasons that jump out to me. Rights, being the first one, and giving a lot of slack to someone's creative process. And in a way, like in their defense, we're talking about filmmaking in Hollywood at the moment as opposed to filmmaking generally. But the Hollywood machine They all see the same scripts. They all have the same agents pitching the same scripts and the same stars pitching the same ideas to them. So when they get to a a script like, I guess we were talking before about movies that get greenlit without even really fully functioning scripts, I suppose. But by the time you get a movie, and like you were talking about Iron Man before as well, but by the time you get to a, a movie that's got, that there is actually a working script, it might need a few rewrites or something. They might need to workshop a few endings with some test screenings and stuff but it's been around the traps it's been worked on people have passed on it and so 
there's probably only a certain number of scripts through the mill of all the studios and got floated up to the top and there might only be, you know, 50 of them floating around at any one time and whatever the particular genre that is popular at the moment. If there's one sitting there that's not quite ready, it's a bit of a rough diamond. If gross-out comedy is suddenly hot because of Will Ferrell or something or the Ted movie or something, they go, oh, quick, we don't need to make one of those. Quickly, let's do it. And they'll pull one off. That's the impression I get as how these decisions often get made. And like you were saying, there are other sort of business decisions that need to be catered for in terms of maintaining rights to things. But also it's like you were saying before, whatever is hot right now or look, we've got Brad Pitt. He's available for the next nine months and he really wants to make this movie. Let's just make this movie. Fuck it. We don't have a script, but let's just, you know, we'll wing it. And it's got Brad Pitt and it's got zombies in it. You know, how bad can it be? And to give benefit of the doubt to the studios, when we say they often don't have a script, they actually may have had a script in the first place, but they throw that script out or an actor drops out or a location falls through or they shoot the third act like World War Z and doesn't work out. So they have to basically improvise on the run because it's much cheaper to shoot a third act writing it day by day by day than it is to basically end the film shoot, come back six months later, get the same crew, the same cast, same hair colour, the same makeup, the same location to reshoot the third act then. Yeah. Everyone's there. And this is the weird bit that we always forget about with any film production in Hollywood or any film production at all. A film production is basically like setting up an iPhone factory to make an iPhone for one iPhone only, just one iPhone, there's no efficiencies in place. You're learning everything on the spot for the first time. And after you make the one iPhone, i.e. the one film, you then close the entire factory down. Like it's actually a very uneconomical system where you are creating a company for the sake of one widget, i.e. one film, to then close that entire company down. And everyone's working with each other for the first time, doing everything for the first time in terms of this particular story, this particular iPhone, for example. So it is often more efficient for them to make three Lord of the Rings or three Matrix movies at once with the same production cast, all in the same location. Let's just pump it out. We'll cut it all up later and we'll release it year on year over the next three years. Totally. And also, if we're making the film and the script isn't working because of the cast we have or the director's creative vision or... It's rained every day, for example. We have to now set scenes on the inside, which means the predator or the alien or the monster can't be shot on the outside. We have to improvise on the spot because easier and cheaper to improvise now, as crazy as that may be, mm. that's analogous to throwing our business plan because everyone is here before we fly back from Costa Rica or fly back from Atlanta back to LA. So giving benefit of the doubt, there are reasons why it happens and it makes sense. It is strange at the same time that a script isn't road-tested enough in the first instance to at least minimise that problem. And I think like gambling, when it works, everyone celebrates their wins and are quite vocal about that. But like gambling, when it doesn't work, people don't yell from the treetops because they're embarrassed because it's been an artistic yeah, you, or commercial flop. You hear about- the the amazing ones that got you know it got made for ten million and it made one fifty or something and then conversely you hear about the ones that were made for one fifty and made ten but you don't hear about all those ones in the middle that made a bit lost a bit or you know lost a fair bit but was never going to or whatever you know 
went straight to video and blah, blah. So what happens next? If we ran Hollywood, what would you do differently to try and minimise the losses to try and, with great consideration to the artistic process, ensure this sort of bullshit of shooting a film on the run without a script doesn't happen? I mean, for me, it's difficult because there's not many movies that get made in Hollywood that I actually want to see anymore, like, because it's all comic books and sequels and reruns and, sorry, re- remakes. But I would put more emphasis, I think, on original ideas or if not original ideas, at least original takes on previously done ideas and try and filter that interest downwards through the agents to the stars so that the stars want to make movies that are more interesting than remakes or comic book movies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. I would actually go along with that and agree. I'd extend it a bit further and say I would suggest that Hollywood take lessons if we were movie moguls for a day, what happens next, that they should apply some of the lessons of indie film or the theatre where they road test actors more, they play, they rehearse or they audition actors against each other more And they also maybe shoot more test footage in the same way that many aspiring directors who want a job basically shoot like a mini film with visual effects and so on to demonstrate they have the capacity for the job. Mm -hmm. Do the same thing, but pay for it rather than actually having the aspiring director pay for it themselves out of their own back pocket for the job. Once you've hired them, do the same thing. Just shoot a few scenes here and there, which they often do, but by then the train has already left the station. And just recently I saw they were making Bad Boys 3 and I was shooting behind the scenes, camera tests and so on, which is great. But extend that to the script and the characters, not just the way the camera lights the characters. But who wants to see Bad Boys 3? I mean, seriously. Well, I guess there must be an audience for it. That's been in the wings since the second film in 2008, I think. And there was talk or 20, no, 2004. So there was talk of doing this as a 10-year anniversary four years ago. It's been through three different directors, if not more, three different writers, if not more. Wow. And here we are onto the umpteenth group of directors. And he could say that at least they're going through their actors now to try and work out which directors are better before the train leaves the station. But is it still starring Martin Lawrence and Will Smith? It sure is. Wow. Bad boys for life. Is that what it's called? Actually, speaking of bad boys, that reminds me of uh, (laughs) this afternoon. Oh, what about that guy? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, enlighten our listeners. Segway, man. We live in a fairly busy inner city slash, what would you call it? It was a reasonably high residential area. Yeah, it's one that, like every uh, major city where you have the older suburbs close to the CBD, close to the city. And it's quite densely packed with, you know, lots of apartments or not, not small many houses. houses. Yeah, not a lot of houses, but and they're small houses, and not many of them have car spots. With roads that reflected the era of horse and cart or very narrow cars from years gone by. Yeah, yeah. So parking is at a premium. Parking is at a premium. It's tight to, you know, take some corners. Some of the streets you have to suck in your breath as you Absolute, drive past. Absolutely. 
Tuck your side mirrors in. Yep. Do the old uh, Buffalo Bills like Sons of the Lambs. Just, just breathe in. Push the uh, the meat and potatoes through the legs. Oh. Get so snug. Buffalo Bills. As you squeeze by. And old mate's parking his Porsche and we see him there and you're trying to get a spot for the night and um, and we can see he's like a good metre and a half from the front of the parking section, which I would describe as behind the parking sign before the no stopping, the no parking sign. So he's got absolute right of passage to park as close as he wants to that sign in the front, which would maximise the number of vehicles that could get a park behind him. 6.30 at night, so it's a free-for-all, no restrictions in terms of timing, and people are going to be coming and wanting a park for the night. So old mate gets out of the Porsche up to two metres to spare in front of him, so only a motorbike could park in front of him without getting a ticket. No car, not even a smart car could fit in there, yet by taking up that extra space with his car, which is a Porsche, not a particularly long car, not a, not a truck or van, he... <laughs> Yes, he has. He has uh, he's effectively taken up close to two spots. It's effectively taken up two spots with one car, and it is unhelpful. It's thoughtless, and it's the type of dick move I would expect from a guy, a middle-aged man driving a convertible Porsche. Yeah, what happens next? If people are to not maximise the spaces- Get a parking fine. Yep, you think? So, essentially, if you leave more than- one metre or two metres between the edge of your front bumper Mm. and the end of the parking space, as clearly delineated by signage, you should be fined. Yeah, no excuse. If for some reason you get to that spot and there is a car parked in front of you and more than half the car is overhanging into the no parking thing in the front, you take a photo of it on your phone as proof, you park the car and you walk away. Okay, that is your proof to get out of the ticket if you got a ticket for being a shit parker. If a parking police comes by and goes, there's a two-metre gap there in the front, why didn't you move into the space? Ticket, 100 bucks. Not 250 not 300 100 bucks. Learn your lesson. Think about where you park. Take two seconds and go, oh, actually, I'll just move forward to let old mate get in behind me, you know? I think you're being very generous when you talk about someone being thoughtless. I actually might go one step further and say stupid. Stupid or arrogant. Yeah. Because if you park a car, right, what do you do? You do two things. You look at how close you are to the gutter, A, and you look at how close you are to the beginning, the front part of the car and the back. Yeah. It's not rocket science. Yeah. Like, if you park between two cars, you clearly know the beginning and end of your car. If you park on the side of the road between signage, it's not rocket science. You just basically move the front of your car to the edge so that you know that you've maximised the parking behind you. In the same way, if you park at the back, you reverse the car as far back as possible. So, I don't know. I feel like it almost goes beyond thoughtlessness to just stupidity or arrogance because it's not rocket science, right? It's just there. It's like it's the most basic check of parking a car. Only the fence for it can be... If you are a regular parker in that spot and you know it will only fit three cars, there's no point trying to make it fit three and three quarters or three and a half. It's a three-car area. But who makes you the judge of that? Like, you do your job, you park at the very front, and then, what, four little micro cars can park behind you, you know? You yeah, exactly. In this era of motorbikes and minis and those smart cars, for example, those smart cars are the width or the length of half a car, right? Mm. Mm. And similarly, a Mercedes Sprinter tradie van is the length of one and a half cars. Mm. 
You don't know who's going to park behind you. So as I often say, what's the harm in doing something or not doing it? There is no harm in maximising the parking behind you, particularly when if someone parked their car within one centimetre of your bumper, it doesn't matter because you're they're more parked in than you are. Mm. You can just drive out. Mm-hmm. If, for example, you've got a phobia about being parked in, I can appreciate that. So let's say, for example, say that you don't have a verse too far back in case some dickhead this the total parks you in. This is the opposite. It's like- in front of you is Daylight. clear space of five metres of road. You cannot be parked in at all. In which case, don't do it. Don't predict. Don't do somebody steps on a profit of parking standards or what type of vehicles may park behind you. Just park as close as possible to the front and get out. So- I, must, I must say, although this guy was driving a fairly average Porsche, I do have some friends that drive Porsches and- and they're not all like this. This may just be the um, stereotype proving the pr- serious, pr- uh, proving the rule. There. Beep beep beep. Yeah, if only. If Big old, apologies to Porsches out there. If only, old, if only old mate in the Porsche didn't back it up so far, we wouldn't be in this position. Speaking of that sort of shit, I think I have possibly a vehicle complaint to oh. outdo your parking complaint. Lay it on me. So I was in traffic today on the way to swing past to pick you up after work to the pod, and there was someone in front of me that appeared to have a chandelier of shit swinging from their rear vision mirror in the middle of the windscreen. It wasn't Sia. No, no, it wasn't. I don't know what to say. Like, before we even start with what happens next with those people, before we possibly consider public execution or stoning or burning at the stake. I don't understand. Okay, recently we discussed personalised number plates, customised tattoos, this whole idea of me, me, me expressing yourself in some capacity through your objects, through your vehicle, through your skin. Fine. When you're in a car where what is the most important thing is it has four wheels and you can see forward. This idea of hanging all this shit, swinging. So there's two things. A, it's hanging shit to obscure the view, already annoying. But B, having stuff that swings and moves around as well as obscuring the view, just don't understand it. And I actually think that should be some sort of parking offence because it's distracting. Yeah, it's, it's inappropriate, distracting and annoying. Like whether it be those dangling, smelly, pine tree scented doodahs or be it rosary beads or those wacky um, dolls, those troll dolls, whatever it might be, there is no need for anyone to have crap hanging from their windscreen revision mirror. There's no reason for it. Do you put it in the same category as the stick figure family stickers? No, because the stick figure family stickers at the back or the back off mudguard sticker or anything like that doesn't obstruct your view enough or cause any impediment on your driving ability. It's offensive. It's some sort of weird way of badging your vehicle. I think it's stupid. I think it's arrogant. I think it's narcissistic. You think it's offensive? Yeah, it's offensive. But at least doesn't distract from their capacity I think it's done to drive a- the car straight. I think the stick figure thing has done its dash. You don't see it too much anymore. No, I think that has finished. But what doesn't go out of fashion is hanging stuff. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I mean, the classic used to be the fuzzy dice or the Jesus on a cross for the Christians out there or 
something. But um, not that any of them listen to this podcast. Stick a, a Jesus fish. And I say this to my family with great respect, who do have these on their vehicles. Stick the Jesus fish on the back windscreen. I'm not saying that sarcastically or meanly. I'm just saying express yourself that way where it doesn't actually distract from your focus on the road or anyone else in the car. Let's keep the windscreen free. And if there is considered to be more than 200 grams of anything hanging from the mirror, it's an instant parking ticket. Do do you put that in the same category as the people that never remove their rego stickers and would just put like eight years worth down the side of the front windscreen? It's like get out a knife or buy a tool and scrape off that sticker. It's a cry for help. It's a cry for help. I've given up on life. You might as well put a big sign on top of your car saying, I've given up on life. I'm barely hanging in there. Just letting you know. It's basically saying, I'm going to commit to tracksuit pants all the time with an elastic waistband, no trousers. In fact, going one better, I'm going to commit to 100% polyester tracksuit pants. Maybe even those ones that have that kind of swoosh, swoosh, parachute material mm. because I don't care anymore and yep. I'm not prepared to spend the two minutes <laughs> scraping it off once a year because I'm that lazy. Yeah. I'll just find a new clean area of glass to stick it on. Yeah. And I'll make that same decision with my time for eight years in a row. What happens next is the people that do that, that leave their rego stickers or their parking stickers from their previous job forming some sort of weird collage on the upper left-hand side it's or like right-hand side of the screen. Quilt. Like a patchwork quilt. That should be declared on their Tinder profile as yeah. a way of declaring their degree of motivation or laziness. Like of being human. Yep. It should be, I'd say, on the low end of a traffic infringement, possibly a $60 fine. Uh, <laughs> 60 bucks. If There should be some sort of motivation. $10 per sticker. That's right. Some sort of motivation. What happens next is that the parking authority should be motivated to try and help people pull up their socks for them so they are better contributors to society by feeling like they're starting with a clean slate. Yeah, I think- Let's not be saddled with the parking stickers of the past, the anchors of years gone by. Give people a chance to wipe the slate clean. Pay you 60 bucks. Literally wipe the windscreen clean. Clean the windscreen. (laughs) A few stickers, and let's move forward. But, of course, now we don't need them. We just have these um, police cars that drive around, and they can sense if your car's unregistered. Oh, with those special scanner guns or something? Yeah, special. It's like the people in the caravan. They've got these very high-powered vehicles. <laughs> Basically like those vehicles <laughs> They're coming from over the border. Mad Max Fuhrer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're like those ones from Sicario. They drive over the border. Oh, that's right. Mate, I feel like we're going down a road, (laughs) excuse the pun, of insanity and craziness. And it's a steep, steep slide into Rantville, which this podcast series always is, but possibly ultra Rantville. My name is Ben Phelps. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Patreon under Ben Phelps, one word. Phil, it's a pleasure as always, my friend. Thanks, mate. Until next time. Peace out. Night, mate.